You are about to hear the destruction of black civilization. Great issues of a race from... You are about to hear the destruction of black civilization. Great issues of a race from 4500 BC to 2000 AD by Chancellor Williams. Narrated by Joseph Kent. Copyright 2017 BN Publishing. Online at bnpublishing.com. Dedication to the black youth of the 1960s for beginning the second great emancipation, the liberation of our minds, and thus changing the course of history. Preface. While this book is still a summary of more detailed research, it seemed necessary to amplify certain questions and the answers to them. The widespread interest and study in this book is deeply appreciated and rewarding to the author, and letters from the prisons have been the most touching and revealing. As noted elsewhere, I am keenly aware of the many repetitions throughout the work, unavoidable because of comparative methods used, and others for emphasis, which may have turned out to seem overemphasis. Part 1. What became of the black people of Sumer, the traveler asked the old man. For ancient records show that the people of Sumer were black. What happened to them? Ah, the old man sighed. They lost their history, so they died. A Sumer legend. The Preview. This work is a summary of the 16 years of research and field studies which were intended for a two-volume history of the African people. The writing plan for the two volumes would have required at least another five years, even if the serious impairment of my vision had not occurred. In the meantime, there had developed an urgent need for the results of my research, which concentrated on crucial areas in the history of the blacks that had either been unknown, known and misinterpreted, or known but deliberately ignored. My own history classes were only a part of the rebellion against the only kind of textbooks available. It was a general rebellion against the subtle message even from the most liberal white authors and their Negro disciples. You belong to a race of nobodies. You have no worthwhile history to point to with pride. The destruction of black civilization, therefore, could not wait another five years just to be more detailed, impressive, or massive in scope for a reinterpretation of the history of the African race could be compressed into a smaller work for background reading, and so written that Black John Doe, cab driver or laborer, and Jane Doe, housemaid or waitress, can read and understand the message from their forefathers and foremothers, as well as college students and professors. Origin and Development of Study In a small town surrounded by cotton fields in South Carolina, a little black boy in the fifth grade began to harass teachers, preachers, parents, and grandparents with questions which none seemed able to answer. How is it that white folks have everything and we have nothing? Slavery. How and why did we become their slaves in the first place? White children go to fine brick, stone, and marble schools nine months a year while we go to a ranshackle old barn-like building only five and a half months and then to the cotton fields. Why? In the sixth grade, one of our teachers, Miss Alice Crossland, helped me to become a sales agent for the crisis and the Norfolk Journal and Guide. This was like turning on the floodlights of heaven, for the books on our race, listed on the back pages of crisis, set me off on this never-ending search, but raised more questions than were answered. For having read everything about the African race I could get my hands on, I knew even before leaving high school that, one, the land of the blacks was not only the cradle of civilization itself, but that the blacks were once the leading people on earth. Two, that Egypt was not only once all black, but the very name Egypt was derived from the blacks. 
three, and that the blacks were pioneers in the sciences, medicine, architecture, writing, and were the first builders in stone, etc. The big unanswered question was, what had happened? How was this highly advanced black civilization so completely destroyed that its people in our times, and for some centuries past, have found themselves not only behind the other peoples of the world, but even the color of their skin a sign of inferiority, bad luck, and the badge of the slave, whether bond or free? And, since I had learned that whites were once enslaved as generally as any other race, how did it come about that slavery was finally concentrated in Africa for blacks only? In short, no books or other studies in high school and college answered or gave clues to answers to the problems that puzzled me most. For no matter what the factual data were, all the books written about the blacks by their conquerors reflected the conquerors' viewpoints. Nothing else should have been expected. And, considering how thoroughgoing was the capture of the minds of the blacks also, it is really not surprising that so many Negro scholars still faithfully follow in the footsteps of their white masters. I was convinced that what troubled me and what I wanted to know was what troubled the black masses and what they wanted to know. We wanted to know the whole truth, good and bad, for it would be a continuing degradation of the African people if we simply destroyed the present system of racial lies embedded in the world literature only to replace it with glorified fiction based more on wishful thinking than the labors of historical research. My inquiry, therefore, was concerned with black civilization alone what the blacks themselves achieved independently of either Europe or Asia. This was an entirely new approach to the study of the history of the blacks. It meant, first of all, segregating traditional African institutions from those later influenced by Islamic Asia and Christian Europe. In this way, and in no other, we can determine what our heritage really is, and instead of just talking about identity, we shall know at last precisely what purely African body of principles, value systems, or philosophy of life, slowly evolved by our own forefathers over countless ages, from which we can develop an African ideology to guide us forward. In other words, there can be no real identity with our heritage until we know what our heritage really is. It is all hidden in our history, but we are ignorant of that history. So we have been floating along, basking blissfully in the sunny heritage of other peoples. My research was a quest for some specific answers to very specific questions. Some of these were, one, how did all black Egypt become all white Egypt? Note at this point that mulattoes were classified as white in Egypt, all North Africa, and the Middle East, a fact that still confuses blacks in the United States where the very opposite policy was adopted. Two. What were some of the specific details in the process of so completely blotting out the achievements of the African race from the annals of history? Just how could this be done on such a universal scale? 3. How and under what circumstances did Africans, among the very first people to invent writing, lose this art almost completely? 4. Is there a single African race, one African people? 5. If one race or one people, how do you explain the numerous languages, cultural varieties, and tribal groupings? 6. Since it has seemed to me that there are far more disunity, self-hatred, and mutual antagonisms among blacks than any other people, is there a historical explanation for this? 7. And how, in puzzling contrast, is the undying love of blacks for their European and Asian conquerors and enslavers explained? These questions, along with those stated earlier, constituted the core problems for 16 years of study. 
And while the outcome did not eventuate in the more detailed work as planned, I think I succeeded in summarizing the most significant highlights of my findings in the chapters which follow this preview. Origin and the Steps in Study 1. Review of World History Believing that the history of the race could not be understood if studied in isolation, I began a slow and deliberately unrushed review of European history, ancient and modern, and the history of the Arabs and Islam. I say review because by 1950 I had already studied and taught in the three fields of American, European, and Arabic history, a most fortunate circumstance for the task ahead. Two, began the formal study of Africa and Europe, not Africa. I did not know how very wise this was when the decision was made, for I did not then know that Europe and Asia had been hauling out of Africa over centuries just about all of the historical materials I needed to see and study at the very outset, and which, of course, could not be found in Africa. Certainly, I knew from reading all about the Rape of Africa, but to know the scale on which this was done, one must see at least some of it in Europe with his own eyes, and be amazed. The museums in various cities of the European colonial powers are the repositories of much African history. 3. Documentary Sources These are available in both Europe and America. Reports of colonial administrators in Africa, parliamentary debates, reports, and letters from geographers, explorers, captains of slave ships, and, especially rewarding, the reports and letters from missionaries to the respective societies' home offices. For the earliest records on ancient Africa and Europe, Greek and Roman sources were the most useful. 4. Field Studies the field studies covered over two years of work in Africa. Armed with a rather solid background in written documentaries, the primary concern now turned to oral history and the developing methods of historical criticism applicable to it. Several chapters will be required just to detail the methods and procedures of this relatively new and rewarding field of oral tradition. Every region of Black Africa was covered, 26 nations in the East, West, Central, and Southern Africa, and 105 language groups scope of the study. We began in the lands bordering the Mediterranean on the north and extending southward on both sides of the Nile below the 10th parallel, thus including Axum and neighboring kingdoms. This vast territory was the ancient Ethiopian Empire, a federation of autonomous and semi-autonomous kingdoms. The study began here, firstly, because this was the heartland of the African race, where evidence of that first black civilization is to be found there still, despite all the centuries of efforts to destroy it. From the researcher's viewpoint, the most important part of the investigation was the beginning of the task of singling out and clearly setting forth the precise nature of Africa's own independently developed civilization. A continent-wide study of the traditional customary laws of the blacks, for example, enabled us to learn for the first time that a single constitutional system prevailed throughout all black Africa, just as though the whole race, regardless of the countless differences in language and other locally determined cultural patterns, lived under a single government. A similar continent-wide study of African social and economic systems through the millenniums revealed the same overall pattern of unity and sameness of all fundamental institutions. That there is a historical and fundamental basis for real brotherhood and unity of the black race could not have escaped the notice of all those Europeans who have been investigating and writing about Africa over the years. But they are shrewd. Massive black unity would be massive black power, which, of course, would reduce white power and its domination of the whole earth. So white Africanist writers always concentrate on the ethnic differences among Africans, tribal antagonisms, hopeless language barriers, 
cultural varieties, etc. They even make a separate ethnic group of their own mulatto offerings from black women by classifying them as white in some areas and coloreds in others. Hence, a system of thought and practices were developed and superimposed on an already divided race to keep them permanently divided. No one can deny that in this too, the whites have been mostly successful. We have presented in Chapter 6 enough of the traditional African constitution and the fundamental rights of the African people to be specific beginning points for the identity and discovery of the heritage we talk about without any definite frame of reference. Chapter 7 views the long, drawn-out migrations and continent-wide movements that help to explain many of the most important factors in the destruction of the black civilization. For the migrations help to answer the question, what happened to the African people? what caused them to descend from the highest place to the lowest among the peoples of the world. Even though the work was radically abridged, an innovation in historical research was introduced by going beyond the mere documentation of sources in order to validate, beyond all questions of doubt, the principal viewpoints of the work. This was the case study method by which a representative number of states from every region of the continent was studied, North, East, West, Central, and Southern Africa. View from the bridge and the final chapters, I make a more definite break from the old line school of historians. To be objective and scientific, this school insists the research scholar should do no more than present the comprehensive and fully documented results of his investigations. There should be no subjective commentaries, no editorializing, just present the factual data and leave the work to the readers to interpret or evaluate as they choose. This may not only be the correct viewpoint, but it is even beautiful for historians who represent the already arrived people who controlled the world. They can well afford the luxury of historical knowledge for knowledge's sake, the great satisfaction that comes from just knowing how things came to be. But the black historian, member of a race under perpetual siege and fighting an almost invisible war for survival, dare not follow in these footsteps of the master. Quite the contrary, after faithfully researching and piecing together the fragmented record of the race's history, the task of critical analysis and interpretation should begin. What were our strengths of the past? In what respects were we most vulnerable? Where did we go wrong? And all this, like the study of history itself, must be for the express purpose of determining what to do now. In short, the black historian, if he is to serve his generation, must not hesitate to declare what he thinks the results of the studies mean. For even when our history shows us where we have been weak, it is also showing us how, through our own efforts, we can become strong again. The White Arabs. The relentless searchlights of history were turned on the roles played by the use of both Islam and Christianity in the subjugation of blacks. This confused many and outraged those who do not pause to distinguish evil men who use religion to disguise the real aims from religion itself. So the unthinking Muslim or Christian is likely to think that his religion is being attacked, rather than the conquerors and enslavers who disgrace it in covering their drive for wealth and world domination. The blacks in the United States seem to be more mixed up and confused over the search for racial identity than anywhere else. Hence, many are dropping their white western slave masters' names and adopting, not African, but their white Arab and Berber slave masters' names. For the Arabs themselves are white people, the Semitic division of Caucasians, and therefore, blood brothers of the Jews against whom they are now arrayed for war. The confusion will continue.
continue, however, as long as the fact that millions of mulattoes in Arab countries are considered white is ignored, along with the other fact that countless unmixed, sun-baked, desert-dwelling Arabs are not only brown, but some are very dark in color. All this darkening of the skin in spite of their ages-old tradition of the thick cloth covering the face from the scorching sun. Indeed, not only do mulattoes consider themselves 100% Arab, but jet black African, whose forebears were in Arabia for generations, speak Arabic and call themselves Arabs, just as black Americans speak English and call themselves Americans. In both cases, neither the black Arab or the black American thinks he is white. To repeat then, the blacks are in Arabia for precisely the same reasons the blacks are in the United States, South America, and the Caribbean islands, capture and enslavement. In studying the actual records in the history of the race, therefore, the role of the white Arabs must not be obscured either by their Islamic religion or by the presence of the Africans and Afro-Arabs among them, any more than we should permit the Europeans and white Americans to use Christianity to cover their drive for power and control over the lives of other peoples. An European journey. I arrived in England in the fall of 1953 to begin formal studies at Oxford University, primarily through the Institute of Colonial Studies and at Rhodes House, which might be more properly called Africa House. In addition to the study of documentary sources on Africa, I had other objectives. One, I wanted a more direct, close-up view of the European mind, its real attitude toward the black world. Two, the extent to which European wealth and power were derived directly from Africa. Nature and philosophy of the European education that was shaping and determining the mentality of Africans. For I was already fully aware of the disastrous effects of the white American education system on black Americans who, not having any other frame of reference, had to adapt the ideologies and viewpoints of the whites to survive at all, even when those viewpoints are against themselves. This meant visiting various classrooms in elementary and secondary schools teacher training institutes, and classrooms of lecturers and professors in a selected number of colleges and universities. These were not look-in-and-leave visits, but all-day studies at the schools visited, remaining throughout the period in the classrooms and talking with the students, teachers, and principals thereafter. In such a study, one learns very quickly that the textbooks and other works describing education do not tell the same story as the schools in action tell. Four. Finally, I wanted to know, and again, from direct study, exactly what made Oxford probably the greatest university in the world. What are some of the specific elements of that greatness? Was great teaching a factor, and if so, who are the great teachers, natures of teaching, or, in short, what made them great teachers? From just the foregoing aims of the study, it must be obvious that I was still examining various aspects of the probable reasons why the whites became the masters of the globe. France and England, I found that the system of education fostered a new kind of aristocracy. An aristocracy of the educated college graduates constituted the new upper classes. The son of a carpenter or railroad conductor became estranged from his family and former friends upon receiving his university degree. A case in point was J.L., a young Englishman in my college at Oxford Lincoln, and who was one of my close friends there. He refused to go home during any of the long vacation breaks because, to quote him, I can no longer associate with my family and old friends. Wouldn't know how to talk with them. We have nothing in common now, you know. This British and European philosophy of education fitted in ideally with those Africans from the continent and elsewhere who, unlike JL, came to Europe from the privileged class at home. Some 
of those studying in England became more British than the British, just as many from what was French West Africa became more French than the Frenchmen. The first tragedy to note about the effects of this class education on blacks is that it further reinforced colonialism's policy on perpetual disunity in Africa and elsewhere. The line dividing these black upper and middle classes from the black masses and their basic aspirations is more rigidly drawn. And this superior class mentality, becoming even more crystallized since independence, is almost a certain guarantee of future uprisings on a scale never seen. The second great tragedy is in the nature of what is called education. It is mainly rote learning, the ability to memorize phrases, concepts, and other required data. Thinking is neither required nor expected. Critical analysis and evaluation of subject matter are not required, but the ability to absorb and recall is required. The brilliant scholar, then, is one who can readily quote authority and remember well his bibliographical sources. So we have a generation of black scholars who continue to amaze students by mouthing the doctrines and viewpoints of their white teachers, like so many robots without minds of their own. Yet, study under white teachers and professors should be most rewarding, and it can be if you do not enter white institutions with a head like an empty pitcher going to the fountain to be filled. I was safe and richly rewarded during my studies in white universities only because I happened not to be so naive that I expected the viewpoints of the conquerors to be the same as those of the conquered on matters relating to our place in the world. Elsewhere, I have emphasized, by repetition, that some of the most fruitful sources for study came quite unintentionally from white scholars. A case in point was at Oxford. The course was The History of Colonialism in Africa. The presence of two or three blacks in the class, while obviously uncomfortable to some, was generally ignored. For African studies were of long standing as an integral part of the imperial system. They were not planned for Africans at all, but for the future administrators of the empire in Africa. So Professor Madden was pointing out in his lecture how difficult, and even impossible, it was to rule Africans in view of their wild and most primitive system of democracy. For just as fast as African kings or chiefs undertook to carry out British laws which displeased the people, the people would remove them from office. Therefore, this primitive African democracy had to be destroyed before the British system of indirect rule could be effective. The point here is that these sneering remarks by an eminent British historian revealed to me an entirely new field of research. That lecture led me into the study of one of the most significant developments in the entire history of the black race, an ancient system of democracy existing before Greece evolved from a continent-wide constitution that governed the whole African people as a single race. This all-important finding was arrived at by comparative studies of African customary laws in every region of the continent. Europeans were confronted with a real social democracy that existed long before the terms socialism and democracy were invented in the West. For Dr. Madden, it was savage because the people were the real rulers in fact and not merely in theory. The Field Studies Insofar as the study of African history is concerned, I regard direct investigation in the field and in Africa as one of the highest importance. This fieldwork should be undertaken only after thoroughgoing research in written and other documentary sources. The study of available written sources, their evaluation, and the mountaining archaeological records are all the first major phase of African research, and I would say, a prerequisite for fieldwork. The fieldwork was mainly concerned with oral history. I had noted in my study of sources of noted historians that many who decried oral tradition as unreliable 
never failed to use it themselves to supplement or give added validity to the works. The fact is that neither written nor unwritten records should be accepted as true without verification. Although two years were devoted to the fieldwork, the ground covered was possible only because of careful advanced planning and the scheduling of areas and groups in each country months ahead of my arrival. These had to be in the hinterland or bush country, generally far away from the westernized urban centers. For our quest was not for the long-standing tradition of either Islam or Christianity in Africa, but more for the ancient tradition of Africa itself. So vast and untapped is the real history of the African race that I myself only scratch the surface of what is yet to be done. Some of the areas to be explored by future historians are set forth in pages which follow this chapter. A major research project should not be undertaken by a single individual. This was my mistake, hence the 16 years of work that a research team of 8 or 10 persons might complete in 3 or 4. The kind of well-organized research teams required for in-depth studies may be difficult to promote because of our pitiful go-it-alone individualism. A research project such as mine should have had a team of highly trained experts from the field of history, archaeology, anthropology, medicine, linguistics, tropical agriculture, political science, etc. The widely ranging scope of the study, minus a team, was possible only because of the interest and active support of certain African governments and the unforgettable help of the people in every region and country. For all kinds of help were needed. As indicated above, much had been prearranged. The United States Department of State had notified the American Embassy in each country that I was coming, requesting our ambassadors to give any requested assistance. Accepting the Sudan, where embassy officials appeared to be under some kind of fear, the embassies everywhere went all out to be helpful. The embassies had the very important work of making the advance arrangements for trips into the interior through the appropriate ministries in each country. These in turn had to contact the various provincial governors or district commissioners who had to make living and conference arrangements with village chiefs, elders, and keepers of oral traditions and other specified groups. The amount of time all this advanced work saved for the study itself is obvious. The volunteer work of our African brothers who accompanied me into the field was what I refer to above as unforgettable. Some of these were teachers who, as in the case of my previous field work in 1956 and 1957, had secured leave for the purpose without any trouble at all. Indeed, even the people we call illiterate had that storehouse of wisdom, which made it easy for them to understand that I was working not for myself, but for them, for the whole black race. I'm trying to make it clear here that, although I did not have the kind of research team referred to above, many people, 128 in number, participated in this work and made the outcome possible. So when at various places I say we, it is not the editorial or royal we, but references made to the individuals and groups that actually worked on various parts of the study. However, I had to decline the services of many highly recommended Africans because of their upper-class attitudes towards the common people. For I had learned quite early that the people in the interior can spot the arrogant and superior African just as easily as they recognize the arrogant and superior white investigator. They will give answers to questions readily enough, but not the right answers. I therefore selected only those whose heartbeats seemed to be tuned to the heartbeats of the great common people from whom all of us came. Interpreters were generally assistants who spoke two or three of the languages of the country. An entirely new kind of assistant was the verifying interpreter. This is to 
double check the interpreters, for sometimes they do not convey your question precisely or give back the exact reply. There were training sessions before and during the field work. In those fortunate cases where we had four or five competent assistants, one of the interpreters remained with me, while the others worked on special assignments in different places in the area. The documentary research preceding all this in the United States was not done entirely alone. Some of the most important areas of my study of ancient sources were rechecked in independent studies by a select group of graduate students in history. Their assistance in reappraising such early sources as Manetho, Herodotus, Josephus, Strabo, Abu Sali et al. was invaluable. Foremost among these was Reverend Carlton J. Hayden and Mr. Donald W. Key Hefner. In concluding my remarks on the field studies in Africa, some comments on four of the countries we visited are in order. Sudan, the authorities did not want me to work in or even visit the all-black southern provinces. Their 15 years of rebellion against the Arab North caused the whole vast area to be officially sensitive and therefore barred to outsiders. The suggestion was that I confine my studies to the northern Sudan. This I refused because I had been previously assured that the rebellion had been completely crushed and that peace and quiet prevailed everywhere. Besides, I could only find Islamic institutions in the north, institutions of which I already had full knowledge by years of special study and teaching. As indicated above, the American Embassy in Khartoum did none of the preparatory work about which I give the U.S. embassies throughout Africa so much praise, although it had six months' notice before my arrival. And they maintained a strictly hands-off policy after my arrival. I therefore prepared to leave at once, but announced that I do not beg to study anywhere and that the world would learn that this was the only African state where an African scholar was barred. The Ministry of the Interior reacted swiftly. Not only was permission to do fieldwork in the South quickly granted, but all the necessary arrangements were made with dispatch. This included establishing my southern headquarters at Malakal. The simple fact was that while they were quite familiar with European research people roaming freely all over the country, a black doing field studies in the Sudan is a phenomenon indeed. Ethiopia, the new name for Abyssinia, like the Republic of the Sudan, is also ruled by people of mixed blood who not only do not consider themselves African by race, but who also maintain a privileged class society based upon color. To them, all black-skinned Africans are Bantu. To these, they feel superior by reason of white blood, and their discriminatory practices are just as subtle and real as those of the whites. And although the enslavement of black-skinned Africans continue in both countries even in our times, both the Sudan and the new Ethiopia have adopted the Brotherhood Front since the sudden rise of so many independent African states, the Sudan to serve as a bridge between the Arab world and the new black states, and thus control or influence their international policies through the UN, and Ethiopia to more directly control or influence black Africa through Western backing in establishing the headquarters of the Organization of African Unity in Addis Ababa, and pushing Haile Selassie into the key role of continent-wide leadership, thus blocking the dangerous influence of the Kwame Nkrama. It is because of my steadfast refusal to either skip or gloss over these aspects of the historical record that I am criticized by many Negroes, and I know exactly when to use this term. And now southward to the fully white-ruled lands where hostility to a black face was fully expected, Rhodesia and South Africa. Long before reaching South Africa, I was told that I might as well skip Rhodesia, and that even if admitted into South Africa, I would not be permitted to work. 
But Rhodesia, to the surprise of just about everyone, pulled out all the stops as though it had resolved to outmatch all the black states in amenities and various kinds of assistance beyond all expectations or needs. There was the usual press conference, followed by front-page headline coverage of my mission. The other surprise was invitation for TV and radio broadcasts to the nation. Our Zimbabwe friends were somewhat suspicious of the motives behind all this red carpet treatment of a black American, especially when it continued after my uncompromising replies to questions on a TV broadcast panel session. The Ministry of the Interior had an interpreter flown 300 miles to join me when I visited his particular language group, the Nidabel. The only objectionable incidents were when, on two different occasions, in different places, two different officers wanted to attend my meetings with chiefs and the Council of Elders. I objected, and the matter was closed. Finally, South Africa. The situation in this country is so ridiculous that, far from allowing myself to be incensed with rage, I found it amusing. The unremitting brutality of these whites against the blacks leaves them in a state of permanent fear. They seem to consider every black man not a potential, but an actual threat. And what they are preoccupied with every hour is unbelievable until you are actually in South Africa. My passport was a mistake made somewhere. I, of course, had no intention to do field work in South Africa, but had to pass through it to reach the surrounding countries then under British rule. No one at all was supposed to be barred from passage to and from these countries required the action of the U.S. ambassador at Pretoria and an angry American council general at Johannesburg to free me from the airport room where I was held and checked on every 30 minutes. Even when the council general arrived in person, the authorities insisted that I must not enter the city, but be taken under guard to the train for Swaziland. Mr. Riley, the CG, then decided to defy South Africa by not only driving me leisurely through Johannesburg, but 200 miles around the country stopping at different towns, and finally on to Switzerland. What I referred to above as amusing were incidents such as excited policemen rushing to flag down the big Cadillac because they could so quickly spot a black face before they saw the seal of the United States emblazoned on the sides of the car or the American flag flying from the hood. An African is a member of the black race, and from times immemorial, he was known as such by all the peoples of the world. Throughout this work, the term refers to blacks only. It should be noted that when I write about the African people, not African peoples, as Western writers do, I am dealing here with essentially one people, one race if you please, the African race. In ancient times, African and Ethiopian were used interchangeably because both meant the same thing, a black. This, of course, was before the Caucasians began to reorder the earth to suit themselves and found it necessary to stake their birthright over the land of the blacks also. In line with this, some Western historians have recently wondered where the Africans came from. The reasons given for beginning formal studies of Africa at Oxford implied much more than was stated. Reference was made to studying the Caucasian mind, for therein may be found the clues that lead to a better understanding of the history of the blacks and how the systematic blackout of significant portions of that history occurred. This is why I urge those students who intend to accept the great challenge of basic research in this discipline to go into enemy territory, linger there, study, and critically analyze their lectures and their scholarly writings, for they are some of the most rewarding sources for African history, precisely because in shrewdly attempting to delete, disguise, or belittle the role of the blacks in world history, they often reveal the opposite of what was intended. They are fruitful sources of unconscious evidence, 
supplying the very evidence they thought to suppress or recording facts the significance of which they were totally ignorant. A fairly good example is the written account of a European explorer in East Africa. He was outraged because he and his party had to wait two weeks to present requests to explore the country to the African king. The black autocrat, the account went on, had the presumption to keep white men waiting in order to show his people how high and mighty he was. The whites were denied even a brief audience, while the king would quickly receive any old black that wandered in from the countryside. Now, the explorer, without knowing it, was actually reporting how African democracy worked, and how it had been working before there was an Athens or Greece where Westerners think democracy was born. The explorer would have been surprised to know, one, that king in Africa meant something entirely different from what it meant in Europe and Asia. Two, that this black king, far from putting on airs, did not have the right to receive them even socially without the presence of at least three senior elders. Three, that to consider a petition to conduct explorations in the country, the full council of state had to be called, and that this could not be done by the king without the advice of the first minister, who happened to be on tour when the explorers arrived in the capital. Four, and that the old blacks they saw wandering in from the countryside and being quickly received were the counselors who had been summoned, some from distant provinces, to pass on the request to explore. They were the direct representatives of the people. The voice of the king was in fact the voice of the people, without which he could not act at all on any matter of importance or even talk alone with strangers. It should be clear, therefore, that our guidelines for research must lead to a critical analysis of all sources, whether original, secondary, or oral. In particular, we should seek out those works with the special mission to prove the superiority of whites by proving the inferiority of blacks, all in a language so subtle, scholarly, and scientific that to the uncritical mind their truths seem self-evident. But it is also noteworthy that while the most hostile racist writers usually prove the very opposite of what they intended, their works inevitably contain useful, factual data that must be accepted. Indeed, it is doubtful whether anyone, even a devil, write a book completely devoid of truth. Research in African history is more tedious, laborious, and time-consuming than is true in other unsuppressed fields. For in developing the underdeveloped history of the blacks, one has to explore the most likely sources for a fragment here and a fragment there, and in works in no way concerned with African history, and just as often, no kind of history. Sometimes it's a paragraph or two in an explorer's account, at other times, significant items may be found in the numerous missionary reports to the Home Office, explaining the mission's tasks, but also the native instructions to be overcome. All of these may be valuable and most valid sources precisely because they were not intended to be such at all. The writers were detailing bigger European interests. Any references to Africans were merely incidental to larger purposes. Just piecing all these fragments together could be a research field by itself. My work in European and American history, I ran into no such problems, and the research tasks were easier. In Egyptian history, to give a final example of Caucasian roadblocks to be overcome, one has the extra time-consuming job of identifying the numerous black giants of history who have been classified and effectively disguised as Caucasians over the centuries. First of all, one must know the various names that refer to blacks exclusively, and by which they were known throughout the ancient world. In addition to the more widely used African and Ethiopian, they were known as Thebans, Libyans, Dinites, Nubians, Kushites, Memphites, Numidians, etc. Even before white Asians gained the ascendancy of any of these areas, 
presence in relatively small numbers was sufficient to identify them as the leaders and achievers of whatever attracted the attention of the world. Another trick, the very opposite of the American law and practice, was to classify Africans with Caucasian blood as Caucasian. If any of those so-called classified turned out to be notorious characters, pro-African or anti-white, they were loudly proclaimed and contemptuously called half-breeds. The millions of early blacks were forced either by circumstances or expediency to replace their own names with Asian and European names only added to the problems of historical identification. Far from becoming baffled and discouraged by the more painstaking basic research required, the student of African history must accept the challenge as a 20th century mandate that is essential to the salvation of the race in the most literal sense. They will need the active support of black government and predominantly black institutions of learning. These should be actively sponsoring, one, comprehensive basic research programs, two, research teams for field studies, especially in history and archaeology, three, and a thoroughgoing teacher training program for history and other related disciplines. What, indeed, are black institutions of learning waiting for? The young people to show the way? The simple truth is that what is needed first is active pioneering initiatives. Financial assistance would then be forthcoming even from unexpected sources. Black inertia is the main problem. There is still too much dependence on white scholars to do our work for us. I have written elsewhere that as long as we rely on white historians to write black history for us, we should keep silent about what they produce. They write from the Caucasian viewpoint, and we are naive indeed if we expect them to do otherwise, all the value about their scientific objectivity to the contrary notwithstanding. The theoretical framework. Over the years of studying African history, certain propositions and theories evolved quite naturally as guiding headlights in the explorations. A few of them are set forth here, some previously stated or implied. One, that Africa, all Africa, is the native homeland of the blacks, and that the Asiatic peoples who occupy North and Eastern Africa, even though they may have been there for centuries, are no more native Africans than are the Dutch and British who likewise occupy and control the southern regions of the continent. The question of where the homelands are from which all of these invaders came is not debatable. Two, that the blacks were among the very earliest builders of a great civilization on this planet, including the development of writing, sciences, engineering, medicine, architecture, religion, and the fine arts. Three, that the story of how such an advanced civilization was lost is one of the greatest and most tragic in the history of mankind and should be the main focus of research studies in African history. Four, that Asian imperialism, though rarely ever mentioned, was and still is more devastating for the African people than that of either Europe or America, and that the Arabs' white superiority complex is not one whit less than that of Europe or America, although their strategy of brotherhood deceives native blacks. 5. That the forces behind the continuous splintering of already small groups and even the breaking up of kingdoms and empires, followed by the equally endless migrations, included the steadily decreasing death of the soil and the advance of the deserts, the drying up of lakes and rivers, along with the attending change of the climate and the always certain internal strife, all combined with invasions and famine to become a way of life. 6. That the strength and greatness of the African people can be measured by how, in the face of what at times seemed to be all the forces of hell, they fought through to survive it all and rebuild kingdoms and empires, some of which endured a thousand years. 7. 
that within the framework of even the smallest surviving states, they adhered to and kept alive the basic principles of the traditional African constitution and held on through all the passing centuries to the fundamental elements of its ancient democratic, social, political, and economic systems all over the continent. Eight, that Africa was the cradle of a religious civilization based on the conception of one supreme God, creator of the universe, and that this belief in one supreme being antedated that of the Jews by several thousand years before Abraham, and that the role of the numerous subdeities on whom Western writers dwell was exactly the same of that of patron saints in the Christian world. I advance further the theory that the early wandering Hebrews, so numerous in Africa, received many of their religious ideas there, for it was there that Abraham sojourned, Moses was born, Joseph lived, and some of the early years of Jesus Christ were spent. There is no question either that even centuries after mulattoes and Asians emerged as the only Egyptians, they still regarded black Africa as the chief source of the spiritual, the land of the gods, or the land of the spirits. Nine, that notwithstanding the remarkable civilization they did develop in even millenniums before Christ, and the amazing rebuilding of empires in spite of the great dispersions, notwithstanding all this, African people fell far behind in the forward march of the rest of mankind because, in addition to the destructive forces of nature on the continent, and the hostile forces from without, they, the African people, further enshackled themselves with their own hands through certain aspects of their social institutions and beliefs that stood as roadblocks to progress even where conditions were favorable. The Scholars' War on the Blacks This work begins where the history of the Blacks began, in Egypt, northern Ethiopia, and the Sudan, southern Ethiopia. Thus, at the very outset, I clash head-on with the Caucasian version of African history. My focus, then, is on the great issues in the history of Blacks that emerged from this confrontation with white scholarship. For while I have covered much of the same ground explored by scholars before me, I generally reached different conclusions than theirs, and from the same body of facts. Let us pause for a moment at this point. I have made a blanket indictment of white Western scholarship on Africa. If it cannot be sustained, it should never be made. They are brought under fire at various points throughout this work. The kind of work, as I also stated, should be absolutely needless in the closing years of the 20th century. The case against Western Africanists is rather fully set forth in the work itself, but it may be outlined here as follows. 1. First of all, they are not ignorant of the true history of the Blacks, including their achievements as builders of one of the first great civilizations on this earth. Ancient writers say it was the very first, and they, the Western scholars, know all about the authentic early and modern sources. They simply ignore and refuse to publish any facts of African history that upset or even tend to upset their racial philosophy that rests so solidly on the premises sanctified by time that they no longer need to be openly proclaimed. Two, they are, unwittingly, promoting the steady march toward a world conflict between the races. Yet they are doing what they feel they must do in faithful obedience to their Caucasian culture, the racial pattern of which emerged in the 17th century. The steady conquest and enslavement of a whole people made it imperative to create both a religious and a scientific doctrine to assuage the white conscience. Their phenomenal success in the industrial world at once supports and justifies their philosophy, the supremacy of the fittest. The danger now arises from an entirely new and unexpected development, a sleeping and submissive non-white world. While all this white power was being amassed, it is no longer either sleeping or submissive. Three. 
Even the African revolt against colonialism and the worldwide challenge to right domination of the entire Earth, even these signals of change do not disturb these scholars of imperialism. They represent the lords of the Earth, controlling all levels of education, science, and research. They control the education of blacks throughout the world. Therefore, they see no need, even in the 1970s, to take a new look at the history of the blacks from its beginning and start the work of restoring the pages they deleted or ignored. They are doing the very opposite. Their histories and other scientific studies of the blacks were presented just as they have been for 300 years. With the rise and spread of independent African states and the black revolution in the United States, these scholarly representatives of white supremacy quickly reformed the techniques of mind control. They set up in Europe and America highly financed African studies associations, societies, institutes, history journals, and African periodicals of various kinds, all under complete white control and direction. Their African studies programs were pushed in the colleges and universities far ahead of the general demands by black youth for black studies. As the latter demands developed, black youth discovered that white professors not only had the field occupied, but were still teaching their traditional viewpoint on race. In the continuing crusade to control the minds of the blacks through the nature of their education, American and British scholars lead. They are as ruthless and aggressive in their scholarly pursuits on races as their co-partners in seizing and controlling the wealth and peoples of other lands. Having established strong national and international African associations and journals that even attempt to control research activities on Africa, they proceeded to flood the world with hastily thrown together African histories, pamphlets, and publications on just about every subject that could stand a black title. Or, from their all-powerful position of strength, they continue to arrange and rearrange the world as it pleases them, naming and classifying peoples, places, and things as they will. United States, whites known to have any amount of Negro blood, no matter how small, are classified as Negroes. In Africa, North Africa in particular, they do the very opposite. Blacks with any amount of Caucasian blood are classified as white. This scheme was rigorously applied in the history of Egypt, for example, where even unmixed black pharaohs became white, and the original black population was never referred to as Egyptians at all. Black kings who founded and ruled from the first dynasty are disguised as such, while the Sayite kings, white, of the small areas of Lower Egypt are presented as the pharaohs of all Egypt, even when African pharaohs were on the throne of Upper Egypt. Blotting the blacks out of history included replacing African names of persons, places, and things with Arabic and European names. One wave of the master's magic wand, and black Hamites and even Kushites, like their early Egyptian brothers, are no longer Africans. Their periodization of African history is carefully arranged in such a way that the history becomes the history of Arabs and Europeans in Africa, and not the history of Africans. In African History, a recent publication of the American Historical Association as a guide to teaching, their purpose becomes clear in the arrangement itself. First period is from the fall of the Roman Empire to 700 AD, Arab invasions. The second period of African history period of Islamic civilization, 700 AD, to the coming of the Europeans in 1500. The European period from 1500 to 1960 is subdivided at 1880 to mark the period of colonialism. There is no period of black civilization in black Africa. Such is the Caucasian viewpoint, almost a religion. Their very first period eliminated
takes 4,000 years of black civilization and the very greatest periods of African achievements. Their second period is devoted to the Arabs and Berbers in Africa, and in their third period, the focus is on European civilization, and it is all done under the heading of African history. Where it wasn't possible to deny black achievements equal and often above the whites, such achievements were attributed to some kind of Caucasian influence, even if imaginary. Yet the AHA publication number 56 uses the same strategy that makes Western scholarship so very triumphant. The main thrusts of its racist presuppositions are, for the unwary, completely hidden by much highly welcomed factual materials. But what is certain to disarm almost everyone is racism's forthright attacks on racism throughout the publication. I suppose no one is expected to notice the implied incapacity of black historians to deal with African history objectively. They are not referred to as historians, of course. They are some modern African intellectuals who have tried to show great civilizations of the past grander than anything that ever existed. As a direct result of this continued universal enslavement through education, black youth are in revolt. That revolt will become increasingly dangerous as they increasingly realize how completely they are blocked from self-realization in the very institutions that should further it. How difficult it is to find suitable textbooks in black history or even Negro teachers who do not limit themselves to the viewpoint of the white masters who trained them. The frustrations become more intolerable as the young find themselves between two fires. White racists who determine the very nature of their education and Negro educators who also see the world through the blue eyes of the Saxons. In short, they are forced to turn to their own devices because they find so many of their own race who should be working with them in the camps of the enemy. Insofar as periodization is concerned, no one should be so naive as to expect a proper division of African history while the field is almost completely preempted by the enemies of that history. A proper division would tend to encourage a more all-inclusive research and less biased interpretation of the results. Neither will happen until a new generation of black research scholars and historians take to the field, becoming the foremost authorities in their own right, black historians, not a single one of whom will fall in Professor Philip D. Curtin's category of black intellectuals who try to show great civilizations in the past, grander than anything that ever existed. The new research efforts call for black experts not only in the field of history, but also in the allied fields from which African history must heavily draw, archaeology, anthropology, linguistics, etc. The new approach. The first period would begin with prehistory. Primarily because, no, one of the oldest cities on Earth was begun by the blacks before recorded history. Another important reason is that the Canaanites and other white Asians had invaded the Nile Delta and established a stronghold in Lower Egypt, the northeastern Ethiopia, or Kemp, in prehistoric times. This early concentration of whites along the seacoasts of the land of the blacks is a circumstance of crucial importance in black history because it was exactly from this development that the achievements of the blacks were overshadowed by later writers or blotted out entirely. The call is for black specialists for one period in one area. What, for example, was the actual influence of the white Asians, rigidly held back for centuries in the lower one-fourth of the country, upon the blacks who held the three-fourths that came to be known as Upper Egypt? Review and in-depth studies of this period are required. The general historian is out. Best general histories, region by region, can be written only after the work of the specialists is done. The second period might well be from the conquest of Lower Egypt by the Ethiopian leader Menes in 3100 BC to the end of the 
181, also the end of the Old Kingdom. This was the period that gave birth to Egypt, and before which there was no Egypt.
might well be from the conquest of Lower Egypt by the Ethiopian leader Menes in 3100 BC to the end of the 6th dynasty, 2181, also the end of the Old Kingdom. This was the period that gave birth to Egypt, and before which there was no Egypt. It was the period during which black kings united the two lands, started the dynastic lineage system, and began the building of the greatest civilization. The greatest in-depth review and concentration of research should be focused on this second period. It was, in fact, the golden age of history of the blacks, the age in which they reached the pinnacle of the glory so dazzling in achievements that Western and Arab writers felt compelled to erase it by the sheer power of their position and begin black history over 3,000 years later, limiting such as they allowed to Africa south of the Sahara. The third period of black history in Egypt should begin with the seventh dynasty, 2181 BC, and be subdivided into the tragic periods of internal turmoil and white invasions. The first subdivision would be from 2181 BC to 2040 BC, the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th dynasties. Thereafter, strict chronology should be ignored in order to focus on a single issue, the role of invasions and conquests in the destruction of black civilization, with the resulting ethnic transformation of Egypt from black to brown, Afro-Asian and Afro-European to white. This means that the second subdivision would bypass the restoration period of the great 11th and 12th dynasty for the next period of invasion and conquest, the Hebrew Hyksos rule, 1645 to 1567 BC. Again, bypassing the new empire, the other subdivisions would study the periods of the Assyrian, Persian, Greek, Roman, and Arab invasions, and the impact of their conquests and rule on the blacks. The fourth major division would begin with the skipped-over 11th and 12th dynasties, 1786 to 1233 BC, the great 18th, 1567 to 1320, and then continue from the age of Ramses to the end of the 24th dynasty, 1330 to 730. The fifth period should be from the last of the black pharaohs to the destruction of the remaining southern division of the Ethiopian Empire below the first cataract, 730 BC, to the 5th century AD. The 6th period, from the re-emergence of successor black states in the 5th century AD to their final destruction by the Arabs in the 13th century. 
The seventh period, like the second, should not be a time division of neat and largely irrelevant chronological sequences. It is the study of migrations of the blacks that covered many centuries, but which became more widespread and desperate after the Arab conquest of the original center of black civilization in the Sudan. The long periods of wandering all over the continent, often aimlessly, was the great historic race of the blacks for survival, a race that tried to outdistance famine, disease, slavery, and death. The period that should have an intense closer-up study and critical analysis extends from the 13th century to colonialism in the 19th. Elsewhere I have posed the most perplexing question. If the blacks were among the very first builders of civilization and their land, the birthplace of civilization, what has happened to them since that left them at the bottom of world society? Precisely what happened? The Caucasian answer is simple and well known. The blacks were always at the bottom. This answer is clear even in the histories and other educational material they so busily prepare for the blacks themselves. Almost all of the true answers will be found in the study of the causes of the migrations and the tragic results stemming directly from those seemingly endless moments of fragmented peoples. How was the art of writing lost by one of the first peoples to invent it? Study the migrations. How and why did a once great people with a common origin splinter off into countless little independent societies and chiefdoms from which 2,000 different languages and dialects developed? Study the migrations. What caused the brother-against-brother internecine wars, hatred, slavery, and mutual suspicion among the various black societies? Again, study the migrations. There will be several subdivisions of great importance. Slavery in the slave trade, for example, would include Africa, Asia, and the Americas. This would be the background for later periods covering black history in the United States, South America, and the Caribbean areas. The eighth division is the reemergence of African kingdoms and empires by regions between the 10th and 19th centuries. This was the period during which there were attempts in every region of Africa to restore the glory that was Ethiopia's. It is doubtful if any of these black states realized that they were being slowly but steadily surrounded and hemmed in from all directions by invaders from the sea coasts and across the Sahara. The ultimate fall of the black states first under Islamic and then under European Christian blows, closed this period with the triumph of colonialism. The final period is the Black Revolution that ended political colonialism with the rise of politically independent states. This would take us from 1950 to the present and should be subdivided for developments in Black America, South America, and the islands of the seas. From the new approach and plan for research study and development of African history presented above periodization, while recognized as highly important, is not allowed to so fragment a great movement or development covering many periods and millenniums that the real significance is lost. Examples are the ethnic transformation of Egypt from black to brown to white, and the long centuries of the Great Migrations. These defied periodization in any meaningful sense. I only made passing reference in the work to blacks scattered outside of Africa over the world, not from the slave trade, but dispersions that began in prehistory. This fact alone indicates the great tasks of future scholarship on the real history of the race. We are actually just on the threshold, gathering up some important missing fragments. The biggest jobs are still ahead. Ancient China and the Far East, for example, must be a special area of African research. How do we explain such a large population of blacks in southern China, powerful enough to form a kingdom of their own? or the black people of Formosa, Australia, the Malay Peninsula, Indochina, 
the Andamans, and numerous other islands. The heavy concentration of Africans in India, and the evidence that the earliest Aryan chiefs were black, which will make Hitler rise from his grave, open still yet another interesting field for investigation. Even the Negroid finds in early Europe appear not to be as challenging as the black population centers in Asia. For again, reference is not made to small groups which may have wandered anywhere over the earth, rather our concern is with great and dominant populations. These are the blacks who have so puzzled western scholars that some theorize Asia or Europe may be the homeland of Africans after all. The African populations in Palestine, Arabia and Mesopotamia are better known, although the many centuries of black rule over Palestine, South Arabia and in Mesopotamia should be studied and elaborated in more detail. All of this will call for a new kind of scholarship, a scholarship without any mission other than the discovery of the truth, and one which will not tremble with fear when that truth is contrary to what one prefers to believe. Nothing is clearer than the fact that Africa, like the rest of the black world, has only the illusion of being free and independent. It is only about one-third free. It is still as economically in shackles as it ever was, in some respects more so. The study of this period and the conditions it presents will confront the blacks of the world with the final challenge. The response to that challenge will be the test of the genius of the race. The outcome, and indeed, the whole future of the race, depends on the extent to which we have become intellectually emancipated and decaucasianized enough to pioneer an original thinking. Those who do become free, in fact, will no longer readily grab the white man's ideologies and systems, whether capitalism, the Western version of democracy, or communism, without a critical review and analysis to determine whether Africa's own traditional system, when updated, may not be truly superior and best fitted to meet the aspirations of the black world. This last period, then, is the time of great decisions. It may well be the black race's last chance for a rebirth and salvation. The division proposed above for a new approach in the research, teaching and study of African history will outrage most Western and Arab scholars, along with their subservient Negro followers, because I have shifted the main focus from the history of Arabs and Europeans in Africa to the Africans themselves, a history of the blacks that is a history of blacks. They will be coming back, center stage, into their own history at last. But to what end? Will it be just for the intellectual satisfaction of knowing our true history? Knowing it, yes, but so what? The answer is nothing unless from history we learn what our strengths were, and especially in what particular aspect we were weak and vulnerable. Our history can then become at once the foundation and guiding light for united efforts in serious plannings what we should be about now. Chapter 1. The Overview The land of the blacks was a vast land, a big world into itself covering 12 million square miles. From its northernmost point in what is now Tunisia to Cape Achilles is approximately 5,000 miles, and in its widest extent from east to west is 4,600 miles. The whole of this second largest continent was once Belid as Sudan, the land of the blacks, and not just the southern region to which they had been steadily pushed from the north. After Asian, Greek, and Roman occupations, the term Sudan came to indicate the areas not yet taken from the blacks and was coextensive with the Ethiopian Empire. For the Ethiopian Empire once extended from the Mediterranean north and southward to the source of the Nile in the country, Abyssinia, which recently reverted to the ancient name of the Ethiopian Empire of which in earlier times it formed its southeastern provinces. Even as late as the times of Menes, 3100 BC, 
Ethiopia still included three-fourths of Egypt, or up to 29 degrees north parallel. The Asians held the Delta region, hence the two lands, well known to all historians but never fully explained. To explain the two lands, of course, would blast the myth about the builders of Egyptian civilization. It was pointed out that the study of the blacks must begin in Egypt because more of their indestructible monuments are there, and, further, because many of the artifacts archaeologists have been uncovering during the past 75 years as Egyptian are in fact African. Yet, the very heartland of the race and the cradle of civilization were actually further southward below the first cataract, centered around the capital cities of Napata and Moreau. From there, black civilization spread northward, reaching its most spectacular achievements in what became known as Egyptian civilization. The general condition of vast stretches of land over the continent, uninhabited and uninhabitable, seemed to support the Western thesis that Africans never developed any worthwhile civilization, had no notable historic past, and, the more charitable might add, that in the very nature of their situation, it could not be otherwise. Samuel Baker went far in promoting the idea of African innate inferiority, even if he had to use the most forbidding area in Africa to do it, the terrible swamplands of the Sud, an area south of Katorum that in its full extent is as big as England. No one would claim that any kind of society, civilized or savage, could exist in the Sud swamplands, probably the largest in the world. For it was neither land nor water, but a seemingly endless mass of rotting vegetation, interwoven tree-like vines, steaming heat, swarming man-killing mosquitoes, crocodiles, hippos, and other unknown forms of tropical life. The conclusion of Baker and others was that they were in a land where time had stood still since its beginning, where life never advanced and the human species has simply rotated in aimless cycles like the animal life in the sud. As late as the 1840s and 50s, these explorers, even the most ignorant, should have known that in the same vast continent of wastelands, tropical rainforests, and swamplands, there were also areas of arable land and civilized states. But they wrote about what they saw the most of, vast stretches of wasteland and secluded groups of strange people. But as we shall see, some of the great kingdoms and empire builders in Africa seem not to have known the meaning of failure or had any ideas about surrendering to fate. Ejected here, they led the people there and began to build again. Wherever the splintered-off refugee groups found a place where the soil seemed favorable for cultivation and the land unoccupied by preceding immigrants, they settled and began to build villages again. A sense of relative security was a necessary factor in deciding to begin a new settlement. A crucial question was, how many miles had they put between the slave hunters and themselves? For the kind of houses and community buildings they would erect depended directly on the probability of permanent settlement or sudden flight again. In short, whether to build large, sturdy, and attractive compound homes and temples of worship, or easily demolished huts. It was for reasons of security that so many of these groups, later called tribes or societies, sought the most hidden and isolated areas they could find. This permanent separation from their kinsmen and other groups was generally quite contrary to their heart's desires. The original splintering off and parting was often in tears. But breaking up into smaller units seemed to be the only route for survival in a permanent crisis situation, apparently permanent, since the movement of people over the continent had been going on so far beyond the memory of each generation that migrations and temporary settlements were among the most significant facts in the oral tradition of each society. Fragmentation and isolation had two momentous consequences. 
The first was that the isolation of various groups led to the development of over 2,000 different dialects and languages. The second fateful outcome was that the rise of all these tongues widened the gulf between the blacks that territorial distances had already achieved. One should pause here for reflection if there is any serious attempt to really understand what happened to the African people and why. For even without the aid of Western writers in emphasizing the language differences and the cultural variations and attempting to show how unrelated the blacks are, they themselves came, in time, to consider themselves unique and each society not only independent of the other, but its enemy, if only potentially. Disunity and mutual suspicion became an African way of life. Small chiefdoms sprang up everywhere, often no more than a single village of one or two hundred people. Africa, therefore, presented itself to Asia and Europe as the ideal land for exploitation, enslavement, and conquest. The history is complex and many-sided, and would be so if we were discussing just one nation and not an entire continent. This is why our focus must be on the main lines of development, the African-wide aspects, and the unmistakable common origin and continent-wide sameness of basic institutions which these universal aspects reflect. There were then different outcomes for different societies. Some perished even to the last member from disease, starvation, or warfare. Others, despairing of ever again being able to have a fixed abode, became nomads. Some, although isolated so long that they had developed different languages and customs, had nevertheless decided that salvation required a union with other groups. These were the tribes that merged with other tribes, lost their separate identity and languages, and who evolved from this process a single common language, larger and large chiefdoms, kingdoms, and finally empires that began the rebirth of their long-lost civilization. The fiercest wars between the blacks occurred in the founding and expansion of new kingdoms and empires. For while the core groups were voluntary confederations, expansion of empire required the conquest of neighboring states, usually small, independent chiefdoms that preferred to maintain their absolute sovereignty. The repercussions of this forced unity by conquests were to shake the continent from end to end centuries later, when European political rule ended. Modern Africans and students of Africa have tended to emphasize the destructive impact of European imperialism in Africa, while ignoring the most damaging developments from the Arab impact before the general European takeover in the last quarter of the 19th century, a relatively recent period. This point is important. For one of the most remarkable chapters in the history of the blacks is that dealing with those dauntless leaders and people who, having lost one state after another along with three-fourths of their kinsmen, nevertheless overrode all the forces of destruction and death and began to build, always once again, still another state. From the earliest times, the elimination of these states as independent African sovereignties had been an Asian objective, stepped up by Muslim onslaughts after the 7th century AD. So the re-established black states were still being conquered and Islamized when Europeans began to arrive in greater numbers to impose the rule over both Asians and Africans. The big thing that happened here, to repeat, is generally glossed over, ignored, or forgotten. The last being a pretension, since a historical development of this magnitude could hardly be forgotten by serious writers on Africa. For what happened very simply was that European imperialism in Africa checked and replaced Arab imperialism. The Arab screams against Western imperialism are the screams of outrage against Western Caucasians for checking and subduing Eastern Caucasians in the very midst of the blacks they had conquered. 
There are still countless of blacks who are naive enough to believe that the Arabs' bitter attack on Western colonialism showed their common cause with black Africa. Insofar as those who were fortunate enough to find promising areas for settlement are concerned, the picture was generally one of state building and the revival of basic African institutions which, though not forgotten, could neither be maintained nor developed by any people forever on the move. But what about the countless societies, fleeing before the conquering hordes and the enslavers, as well as the famine and deaths which were its daily companion? What about those who found no promised land anywhere? For quite unlike the societies I mentioned that could settle down and had the opportunity to start and develop civilizations comparable to any elsewhere in the world at the time, these people could neither settle down nor, therefore, develop a civilization. What they suffered from year to year as they wandered over the continent is almost beyond both description and belief. In fact, while the story is well known, few writers would want to go into its awful details. Suffice to say at this point that, here now were numerous societies of Africans that were virtually sentenced either to death from starvation or enslavement by Arabs, and I am still in the pre-European period, or barbarism and savagery, and in many cases, even cannibalism. Under such conditions, I would defend not only the retrogression of these people to barbarism, but to cannibalism itself. The defense of the latter is easy, since it has been well established that other supposedly highly civilized men will revert to savagery and cannibalism under prolonged conditions of extreme hunger and thirst, when survival itself is the only question that dominates the hunger-crazed mind. This phenomenon of reverting to a state of savagery and even cannibalism under extreme conditions of starvation is known to occur universally among various peoples, white, black, brown, red, or yellow. The facts we have, then, show that after they lost Egypt and the eastern Sudan, some Africans, overriding all adverse conditions, grouped themselves to form nations and developed a high order of civilization independent of any external influences. Others never settled anywhere long enough to develop anything notable, but seemed to remain in a state of lethargy or suspended animation. They had surrendered to fate and became too weak to fight back. They descended to a state of semi-barbarism. Descended because most of these societies had known better times and a higher order of life. Some, in more favorable circumstances, nevertheless failed to advance.
beautiful song, Mary Did You Know, by CeeLo Green, C-E-E-L-O, Green, G-R-E-E-N, like the color green. Let's listen to it from the top, Mary Did You Know. Stop. 
shows how talented y'all besides that can mix all these different styles together and create something totally brand new completely different just through synthesizing different styles I think there's another one in here
was in action. and we'll come back with Swam. Thank you for listening.